We're continuing in our Christmas series, The Christ of Christmas, and today we're talking about the sacrificed Savior. Last week we considered in great detail that Jesus came to be the humble servant, despite all that would make sense logically, that he didn't come in pomp and in prestige, he didn't flaunt his position like we would have done if we were in his position. He came in the most humble manner possible and defied all expectation, and he came to serve. We ended the text last week and our considerations by focusing in on what Philippians 3.8 said, that being found in form as a man, he became obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. And that's what we're going to focus on today, the fact that our Savior was a sacrificed Savior, and that's indeed why he came. Maybe you have seen uh, the movie, it's now, now it's a classic, it's been out long enough to be a classic, a modern classic, the movie Signs with Mel Gibson, when, uh, where the aliens are coming and nobody knows uh, what they're there for, and there's all the mysterious signs, which is why the movie is called that, all around the farmland, and, and everybody's wondering, why are they here? What do they want? And that, that's, of course, a, a common theme, you know, in sci-fi movies, whenever there's mysterious visitors uh, from outer space. It's even true of uh, Superman, you know, what's this guy doing here? Why is he here? Uh, and movies and things like that ask that question about the mysterious visitor. What it, what's their purpose? Why are they really here? What are they up to? What should we expect from them? And people in Jesus' day wondered the same thing about him. Think of the religious leaders and Pilate and Herod uh, towards the end of his life and ministry, and, and really all throughout his life, there were questions about him. Where did he really come from? What is he really here to do? What's his purpose? What should that mean for us? How should we respond to him? And skeptics and philosophers today still debate that very same fact, and they still question and argue uh, things related to Jesus. What, what is his purpose? What was his purpose in coming? If he really came, if he was here at all, why did he come? What was his purpose? What difference did it make on society? What difference did it make to culture then and now? What difference, if any, should it make to me? How should the coming of Jesus impact me? That's a, an age-old question, and it's a current question, and it's an important question. Why did Jesus come? Some argue that Jesus came to simply be an example of God's love or a symbol of peace. Many people consider him to be a great teacher, of course, or a moral guide, and so they will invest somewhat with him to that point. You know, I'll, I'll follow Jesus because his teaching is, is good and it's right and it instructs me and he's a great moral guide and so I'll, I'll be with Jesus to that point, but only to that point. If it goes beyond an example, if it goes beyond a morality or him being a teacher along the same lines as Buddha or, or any of the other great teachers of the world, if it goes beyond that, if more is expected than that, then no, I'm, I'm out. But I'll go along so long as it's just that. 
Others believe he came to establish a revolutionary, anti-establishment movement. Certainly, people around him in that day expected that. They thought he was going to overthrow the foreign rule. They thought he was going to restore the kingdom to Israel and, and bring Israel back to prominence. The zealots were hoping for that. And um, many today still try to read that into Jesus' statements and what he was about, that he was a revolutionary and we should follow that type of example and throw off the chains of government or any order and, and uh, try to see him more as an anarchist. Thankfully, we can cut through all that. We can filter out all the noise, all the faulty assumptions, all the misconceptions. Thankfully, because of God's Word, we don't have to wonder. We don't have to wonder why Jesus came. Aren't you glad for that? That the Word of God makes it crystal clear why He came and why that's relevant for us today and every day? Why Jesus came. We're going to look in God's Word for that answer, and and we're going to start by looking at Isaiah 53. I would invite you to look at that with me, Isaiah 53. And uh, we will be, I mean, the whole passage, the whole chapter is incredible and powerful and certainly worth careful study. Uh, For our purposes today, we're going to zero in on verses 3 through 6. Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 6. And I will once again be reading from the LSB, the Legacy Standard Bible. So if you have a digital version of God's Word, you should be able to find that in whatever Bible app you use, the LSB. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 3, God's Word says this about the divine servant, the Messiah sent by the Father, our Savior. He, he was despised and forsaken of men. It reminds me of what John said in John chapter 1, that he came to his own, his own people, but his own people did not receive him. They rejected him. He was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, in other words, he must have done something to deserve this. This is, this is what he's getting. It's, it's due. Though that couldn't be further from the truth. Verse 5, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our peace fell upon him. And by His wounds, we are healed. Healed of something much more than physical ailment. We're by His wounds, His unfair wounds, we are healed of our sickness of sin. Verse 6, All of us, like sheep, 
have gone astray, which apparently sheep are prone to do. It's a fitting analogy to humanity. Sheep, where, you know, they're dumb, they're smelly, they're stubborn, just like us. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us, not one is left out of that, each of us has turned to his own way. We are our own God in our estimation. We try to be our own God. We live for ourselves. We serve ourselves. We further our own agenda. We try to be on the throne of our life and our own little universe. That's humanity's predicament. It's what we're born into. It's what we choose. It's how we live. Each of us has turned to his own way. Notice this part. Don't miss this. But Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. Picture in your mind as you hear this and you read this prophecy of the suffering, the suffering and sacrifice Savior. Picture Jesus on the cross right before He gives up, close to the time of giving up His, his Spirit. And He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the answer. This is why. Because his Father, God the Father, willingly took all of my sin and your sin, everything that separated and would separate us from a relationship and fellowship with God the Father, everything that would keep us from knowing Him as Father, He took all of that and He cast it onto His Son. And the judgment that you and I rightly deserved, the eternal judgment, eternal condemnation, never knowing God as anything but judge, all of that was put on His Son along with all of our sin. And the Father, for the first time in eternity, turned away and rejected His Son so that we would never be turned away from and eternally accepted. That's why Jesus came. Putting it very simply, Our Maker, which Jesus was, we've talked about that already at length in this series, that it was Jesus through whom God the Father made everything. He is the Creator. So our Maker came to a manger so He could go to the cross as our Savior. That's why He came. Our Maker came to a manger, the most humble means possible, so He could go to the cross as our Savior. But we need to understand that it wasn't just to save us from hell. Jesus didn't just come to the manger and just go to the cross as our Savior just so He could save us from hell, and that was it. That was the extent. No, not at all. It wasn't just to save us from hell. It was to save us into something far, far greater. It wasn't just saving us from the, the destruction and judgment of, of hell that was saving us into right relationship with the Father and a new status, a new name, a new change of identity, a new existence. 
C.S. Lewis, I love what he said. He said, the Son of God became a man so he could enable men to become sons of God. Isn't that fantastic? The Son of God became a man so he could enable men to become sons of God. So it wasn't just saving us from sin, and it wasn't just saving us from hell. It was fitting us for a whole new identity as sons and daughters of Almighty God. But it took Jesus coming and going to the cross to enable that to happen. Here's what it took for Him to do that, for Him enabling us to become sons of God. This is what it took. Look with me uh, in the New Testament at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. This and the other passage that we will look at, this is what it took for Jesus to enable us to become the children of God. He went to the cross as our Savior, and yes, it was to save us from our sin and to save us from hell, sure, that was absolutely part of it, but it wasn't just that. It was also so that we could live in this life on earth before death. We could live already fully as the children of God that He enabled us to be before we would go to heaven to be with Him. He saved us for the here and the now, not just for then. That's so important to get. So many times Christians live their lives kind of um, just holding on to fire insurance, as it were. I'm saved from hell, and I'm grateful for that, and hallelujah for that. But what about the here and the now? How does that affect how you live each day in real time? Well, being made children of God is just as much part of of the salvation process and the point of it. Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15, and remember, this is framed around what it took for the Son of God to enable us to become the sons of God. Hebrews 2, verse 14, the author of Hebrews says this, "...therefore, since the children," that's you and me, "...since mankind share in flesh and blood..." He Himself, that's Jesus, likewise also partook of the same. It's what we read last week with Paul speaking in Philippians 2 and John in in the prologue, John 1. It's what happened. It's what the eternal Word did. He took on flesh. He added to His divinity our humanity. Fully God becoming fully man. Incredible. He himself likewise also partook of the same, the same flesh and blood, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. That's good news. That's good news. And that's what Jesus had to do. For for him to die... To render powerless him who had the power of death, he had to become mortal. But he couldn't just be mortal, he had to also still be divine for all of this to happen. This transaction, this great plan of redemption, it took 
what only God could do, but it took God becoming man to do it. That's what had to take place. And that's exactly what took place. He partook of the same, the same flesh and blood, that through death, which only could happen if he became man, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, verse 15, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Hallelujah. That's the glory of Christmas. That's what he did. Through his death, he rendered powerless the one who who had the power of death and held it over our heads and held us in bondage to death and in fear of it, slavery to it. He freed us and he allowed us to be free of the bonds of death. Then, 1 John 4, 9 through 10. Look at that with me. 1 John 4, 9 through 10. This is still why Jesus came. This is still what it took for him to free us from our slavery to sin, from our slavery to death that we could not free ourselves from, and, and what it took to make us right with God and to enable us to be children of God. Verse 9, 1 John 4, 9. By this, the love of God was manifested in us. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. You want a picture of love? You want a concept of love? You want to understand what love really is? Here's what it is. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation. It's a great, rich word. To be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation harkens back to the days of the priestly work and the Day of Atonement in particular. When one time a year, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies and he would make atonement for all of the sins of all the nation, himself included. And it was a substitutionary sacrifice. It was an innocent animal that did nothing. It was spotless. It had no blemish. And it was sacrificed in place of the people. And certainly, the animal itself was not sufficient for the sins of the people. It wasn't sufficient for salvation. And the act of sacrifice was not enough to take care of all the sins of the people. It was a picture. It was a symbol. It was an image. It was something pointing ahead to what only God Himself could do and what only God would do. And what this text tells us is that Jesus being sent by His Father, was the sacrificial lamb. He's the one that was pictured with Abraham and Isaac when Abraham lifted his knife in obedience 
to what God told him to do and in faith knowing that, that if, if he had to follow through, God would, as only God could do, bring his son back to life. And he was ready to plunge the knife into the body of his son. But from heaven, the angel of Yahweh, which was Jesus then, Jesus himself, the second person of the Trinity, said, wait, Abraham, don't, don't. Spare your son. And sure enough, as Abraham had answered Isaac before he was on the altar, God did provide himself. God did provide a sacrifice. And it was said after that day, here in this mountain, it will be provided. And later, thousands of years later, yes, indeed it was, on that mountain, God provided the great propitiation, His Son, the atoning substitutionary sacrifice that fully satisfied God's just wrath and necessary judgment on sin once and for all. What was promised to Abraham and Isaac there on that mountain and what was symbolized and ritualized on the Day of Atonement year after year after year, which could do nothing to actually take away sin. It only promised the the future event that would. Jesus was that. He fulfilled it all. He is the great propitiation for our sins. And it was all out of love. It wasn't because we deserved it. It wasn't because we earned it or could ever earn it. It wasn't because we just loved God so much and, oh, how could God not respond to us loving Him like that? No. Mankind, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit enabling them to love God, will always do the opposite. Mankind will always turn to our own way choosing to live for ourselves, to love ourselves. We will always choose to reject God's holiness, God's righteousness, God's standard of truth and morality. We will never seek God on our own. There is not one that seeks to do good. There's not one that seeks God. No, not one. We will always turn inward. We will always turn away. We will always say no to His rule over our lives. We won't love Him naturally from within any place in ourselves. Not that we have loved God, but that in our rebellious, wicked, depraved, dead state, God, in an unthinkable way, loved us and loved us to the point of sending His Son as the necessary propitiation to enable us to seek Him, to enable us to live for Him, to enable us to love Him, and to enable us to be His very children. That's what God did for you. In the coming of Jesus, that's what Christmas is all about. I like what J. Vernon McGee said. Love this statement. He said, the cross is God's Christmas tree. The cross is God's Christmas tree. Let me ask, how often do we connect? How often do you connect the cross with Christmas? How often do you connect the cross with Christmas? How frequently do we include the cross in our Christmas decorations or focus on it along with uh, all the other common 
Christmas symbols and images. My guess is not that often. I, uh, I haven't seen too many Christmas trees, including our own, that you know, have crosses prominently displayed as ornaments around the Christmas tree. Or instead of you know, the holly and the ivy, which you could argue still symbolizes the, the death of Christ. And there's certainly things to see in the images that are common that point if you look deeper. But how many times do we prominently display the cross you know, as, as central? The days surrounding Easter, the days surrounding Easter shouldn't be the only time, church, that we, we pay extra attention to the cross of Christ. It should be what we focus on at Christmas, too. It should be just as emphasized, just as emphasized as the manger scene, as the nativity. Why? Why should we emphasize it just as much? Why should the cross receive just as much focus as as the manger scenes? Why should Easter not be the only time that we, we pay extra attention? It's because the joy of Christmas, the joy of Christmas Day, is tied to the work of Good Friday. The joy of Christmas Day is tied to the work of Good Friday. In fact, Christmas Day wouldn't be good at all if it weren't for Good Friday. There wouldn't really be much to celebrate at Christmas. No presents, no matter how great they might be, no matter how amazing the gifts that are under those trees might be, nothing, nothing would be truly good or worthy of celebrating if it weren't for Good Friday. Nothing at all. And the reason that's true is because Jesus coming as Emmanuel wasn't just God being with us. Notice this. It was God dying for us. We talk about Emmanuel. We know that that's what uh, you know, we, we should rightly focus in on and zero in on at Christmas time. And certainly, Emmanuel means God with us, and, and we rejoice in that, and, and uh, it is worthy of our attention. But Jesus coming as Emmanuel was not just God coming to be with us. It was God coming to be with us so that he could die for us. Don't miss that fact. Lord Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for leaving heaven. I thank you for leaving heaven to come here so that you could go to the cross. I thank you for coming to be the sacrifice Savior that we needed. Thank you for being our great propitiation. Thank you for giving yourself completely. Thank you for holding nothing back. Thank you for being the only solution to our greatest need. Thank you, Jesus, for being willing to be rejected by your Father so that we could be eternally accepted by him. Thank you for not just saving us from hell, but for saving us to adoption. Thank you for doing all of that for us. We give you praise. We give you thanks. We give you ourselves.
We pray all of this in your name. Amen.